Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others, and is the author of Global Warring, how environmental, economic, and political crises will redraw the world map. And she recently testified before Congress on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands. And she has an article at The Guardian, Three Upcoming Events That Could Torpedo Pacific Peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cleo Pascal. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Cleo. And just in the context of India versus China and China's influence, uh, both uh, growing influence, both in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific Ocean, let's just touch on what's happening between Canada, since you're Canadian, uh, and China, and in particular India, because there's been the, the assassination of a Sikh activist in Canada, which has created a rift between Canada and India. And now, of course, there's the U.S.'s... Well, we're not quite sure what's going on with an an assassination attempt on another Sikh activist here in the United States and the extent to which India may have been planning to kill somebody on American soil, which has now got the U.S. Biden administration in private talks with India, which we don't know about, but presumably if that were true, that would be very, very, it's a real red line. So this is obviously not particularly helpful if the U.S. is trying to form a tighter bonds with India in order to contain China if they're at loggerheads over what would would be rather brazen action on the part of Prime Minister Modi. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot, a lot to unpack. Um, I don't really know what's going on uh, on the on the U.S. one, but the 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 Canadian one, there it's, it's sort of helpful at least for me to to kind of disaggregate um, the event this 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 murder of the of this of this Kalistani um, in in British Columbia and the way that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau presented the information because I don't I don't know what happened with the murder but I do know how he presented the information which was extraordinary um, he had had just come back from a really disastrous trip to India for the for the G20 and uh, it really it couldn't have gone worse uh, he he didn't get meetings that he probably had wanted uh, he had to change hotel rooms um, his the plane broke down and he was stuck there an extra two days, um, and so he can't. And this came off the back of an, his previous trip to India, which was also disastrous, where they were perceived to have dressed up in ethnic clothing and kind of played at uh, at being Indian tourists, possibly for the domestic market, but it really didn't go well. And they invited to to um, a Canadian diplomatic event somebody who had been. Um, a, 
tried to murder uh, an Indian. <laughs> so it, it was all, it was just a really a mess on top of a mess. And at the same time, Canada is in the process now of trying to come to grips with PRC uh, political warfare activities that have um, that have been tr trying to distort Canadian elections. And there's a, an inquiry that's starting looking at foreign interference in the in the Canadian electoral process. So the day before he stands up in Parliament and says whatever he said, he had had a dis disastrous trips to India. Uh, Canada was perceived as being soft on terrorism, which had included in the Khalistani context a bombing of a plane in 1985 that killed 239 people, which was never really fully in investigated. Um, and he had this inquiry, political inquiry into China, which he was very uncomfortable with for whatever for reasons we can talk about if you're interested. In. Then he stands up in Parliament and he says, uh, with mushy wording, you know, India's trying to do hit or India did a hit on a Canadian citizen. So then the narrative changes. It's not just China that's uh, interfering in Canada. It's India also. It's not him that was disastrous with the Indians. It was India that's been attacking him and poor Canada. So he flipped the political narrative or, try, or tried to. So that that I'm pretty comfortable with with saying. And if, you know, if it was a, really about getting to the bottom of what happened with this hit, um, I, I would have been more comfortable if they would have started prosecutions. If he has enough information to accuse um, a, a democratic country, which has its problems, but it is a democratic country that, as you said, is on the front line of this war with China, of doing this, then I would hope he'd have enough information to start prosecutions for the actual hitmen on the ground, which has not happened as of yet. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, so far, all I can certainly say is that Canada, the Canadian Prime Minister made a political move on the floor of Parliament, and I, I'm not, I don't yet have enough information to know about the rest of what's going on. Well, let's talk about what you know about and what you've been writing about. Again, your recent article at The Guardian, three upcoming events that could torpedo Pacific peace. What is clearly going on is that both China and India are engaged in influencing these small islands, whether they're in the Indian Ocean or in the Pacific Ocean. In the case of India, they've just had a setback with the election of this new president of the Maldives, Mohammed Muizu, uh, who is now going to kick out the small Indian uh, force, uh, a garrison of Indian troops in this uh, this island. And he's seen as being more pro-Chinese than his predecessor. So is this a win for China? If they got a base right to the south of India in the middle of the Indian Ocean, they've already got a base in Djibouti uh, for, further to the north in the, in the Red Sea. This would seem to be a big win for China at the expense of India. Yes, and it's something that China's been working uh, on for a while. So there was an, there was another election in 2013 in Maldives where um, a similar uh, pro-Chinese candidate came to power. And in that case, it seems like the, the way that the vote was swung is there, there are a lot of Maldivians who work outside of the country. And so you can do mail-in voting, um, overseas mail-in voting. And uh, it looks like what happened was 
candidates who were favorable to China, um, it, you know, funding was provided in one way or another to expat communities of Maldivians in Sri Lanka to do overseas voting. So if you're looking at the domestic vote in the Maldives in that election, it, it didn't look like the Chinese candidate would win. But when the overseas voting came in, um, it tipped it in favor of the pro-Chinese candidate. And in that, in that kind of, it got complicated from there on in, but there was a, an ensuing period of time when the government, uh, which was actually a different government, but it, it was not security minded, was leasing entire islands. And China has leased about a dozen islands. Um, so it had it already has the capacity to set up uh, dual use at the very least bases. And it's not just, as you mentioned, it's Djibouti, but there's also what's happening in Gwadar, which is Pakistan, uh, which is part of the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And then, of course, there's Sri Lanka, and there's stuff going on in in, uh, in Myanmar. So you really can see this this string of pearls that's been spoken about for over, over a decade is, is starting to take shape. And it's not just about constraining India, it's also about um, gaining uh, expansionist control from the South China Sea down through the Pacific Islands and then up into the Indian Ocean. It's this. It's it's functionally the same route that Imperial Japan was looking at from a maritime perspective, you know, in the late 30s and early 40s. Well, let's turn to the Pacific, where China, of course, is is making inroads in the Solomons largely because of ineptitude on the part of the Australians and a kind of neglect on the part of the United States. I mean, the idea that the, the critical battle you just mentioned to Japanese in World War II, I mean, the critical battle of Guadalcanal was the turning point in the Pacific War for the United States, and yet they have, through neglect and, and through incompetence on the part of the Australians, the Chinese have made inroads with a crooked prime minister who is very much in China's pocket, and he is now suspending elections because he would he would lose them, and he's doing a little PR stunt with the Pacific Games that began what a week ago. So t tell us about what's happening in the Solomons. Yeah, well, you 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 encapsulated it very well. Yeah. So as as you, Guadalcanal is the is the main island in the Solomon Islands. It's also the capital uh, where the capital is. Um, and uh, there was, a, especially after after the end of World War II, um, there was a we real withdrawal of the U.S. from that region strategically. Embassies were closed. In fact, the, the embassy in Solomon Islands was closed. Um, and a kind of strategic oversight, so to speak, from a Five Eyes perspective was in that part handed over to uh, Australia. Um, which, which you know, went in with just with an approach that that really hasn't worked. Um, it's there's a whole it's a, it's a whole combination of things. There's a almost neo-colonialism aspect to it. There's a, there's a, a economic exploitation aspect to it, um, and there and there's a, a a real kind of oddness about you know you you put your finger on it when you said he's he's. The, this prime minister is corrupt. The, re the reason he could delay elections was because he used a Chinese slush fund to pay off 39 out of the 50 members of parliament in order to get enough votes to uh, be able to change the constitution and postpone elections. 
And uh, the Chinese money the, the, that goes to his cronies and, you know, like, likely to him as well, in many cases passes through Australian and New Zealand banks, uh, Australian real estate, all that sort of stuff. So if the Australians just did their job and, you know, they'll go around the Pacific preaching transparency, accountability, human rights, rule of law, if they just apply, applied it domestically, to the uh, corruption from the Pacific that is running through their own systems, they could clean up the Pacific and level the playing field with China extremely quickly. China grows off of this, this fuel of corruption. If you cut out the corruption, it, it's greatly weakened. And uh, you know the, the people of the region have a choice that the, they get to vote their own people out, they get to develop their own industries. But because of the Chinese money, all of that gets distorted and you get this metastasization of the, of the Chinese um, state control uh, system to the point where he's putting in like 160 Huawei towers. The country doesn't need it, but it becomes, it helps him have a surveillance state. So uh, the, the the way that Australia has been acting is is sort of perplexing, and I've I've, I've asked you know Australian colleagues you know why why don't you go after him, and they'll say well what are we supposed to do go after every corrupt guy it's like yeah go after every corrupt guy <laughs> you know but at least start with the big ones to give hope to the honest people on the ground who are getting squashed and pushed to the side and can't defend themselves. They're really incredible fighters uh, in the Pacific Islands, people who are trying to stand up to this. And they, 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 they have no oxygen because it's all being sucked up by this uh, Chinese corruption. And because the U.S. ships are now denied entry into Guadalcanal, the very island of, uh, that's so key to the World War II victory, which is a great irony. But isn't the U.S., as much as the Australians have dropped the ball, the U.S. have also neglected uh, this whole region in the Pacific, which where China's making inroads, because, I mean, it's chump change. You talk the kind of money that would you'd need to to invest in these islands, which have, uh, have terrible poverty, is nothing compared. I mean, you know, the the price of one F thirty five fighter, as you point out in your article, The Guardian, would be enough to lift up a lot of these countries. Yeah, and and currently China is fighting in, on the political warfare battlefield, right? So an F forty five isn't isn't going to win it for you anyway. But clearing out the corruption and then essentially what you have to do is block and build. You have to block the malign influence and then build the local economy and the local independence and and sovereignty. The the toughest fighters during World War II during that era were people like the Coast Watchers who in in Solomon Islands who were the who were locals who put it all on the line and risked their families. They lived there to defend their own countries. And they would do it again if they were given, you know, given a chance. You know, they, they don't want to be a colony of Australia and they, they don't want to be a colony of China. They want to be their own countries. And it, it, they are small, but they could do it. There, there are a lot of examples of small economies that, that are successful. You know, I mean, Seychelles or even Maldives, you know, they're not they're they're doing okay they're doing it they're they're doing enough but what's the u.s is sort of realizing that something needs to be done they've reopened the embassy 
in uh, in Solomon's, but there's no consular services, which which is a real problem. It means that Solomon Islanders have to travel to a different country to apply for a visa to visit the U.S., whereas the Chinese will give any Solomon Islander who wants to go to China a visa. Um, the the other thing is that yes, the ships have been blocked, but the during these Pacific Games, the U.S. sent the uh, hospital ship Mercy, Navy hospital ship Mercy, which effectively signals to the locals that they are that the U.S. is supportive of these games that have been used to deny them democracy. So and and the and Sogavari was perfectly happy to let the mercy in because it lets him show his uh, colleagues, look, I can get the Chinese to do what I want. I can get the Australians to do what I want. I can get the U.S. to do what I want. So why would you go up against me? Right, but he doesn't want to have an election. <laughs> no, and and he's brought in a huge number of troops and drones and all sorts of security equipment under the guise of these games. I mean, Bro I don't know. Brought it in from China, you mean? He brought it in from China and the Australians. The oh Australians gave him yeah. weapons. I, you know, so it's I, you know, and again, I've spoken to Australian colleagues and said, "What do?" You, you know, what are you doing? And they said, well, you know, if we don't do it, the Chinese will. And I was like, well, then why don't you not do it and complain about the Chinese doing it and put, you know, sanctions on them for militarizing a peaceful society. And uh, again, try to take the side of the of the democratic, uh, freedom loving Solomon Islanders, instead of trying to mimic what the Chinese are doing. You're never going to beat them at their own game, and it's a horrible game anyway. Wow. Well, look, obviously this is a subject we'll have to keep following with you, Cleo, because uh, obviously there's other islands involved, many of which uh, recognize Taiwan, of course, and China's yep. in, in a battle to win them over. So we will pick it up again, and I thank you for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others. And she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she recently testified before Congress on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands.